Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thanks for joining us again as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're continuing in Matthew chapter 19. We saw in our last episode that when the religious leaders asked Jesus about what conditions uh, justify a divorce, he simply said, no divorce. And then after he said that, here's the disciples' reaction, starting in verse 11 of Matthew 19. But he said to them, not all men can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to receive this, let him receive it. And there are three situations Jesus mentions. Those who are eunuchs from birth, in other words, through some type of birth defect are incapable of marrying and having children. And then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Very often in the ancient world, in the royal court, uh, those who are actually castrated in order to serve in the royal court. And then he says there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's he talking about there? It's very simply a euphemism for celibacy. For instance, in Lumen Gentium in the Second Vatican Council, it says, towering above these councils is that precious gift of divine grace given to some by the Father, the Heavenly Father, and then it references in that Second Vatican Council document, Matthew chapter 19, 11, where we are today, and it also mentions 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7. And it says again, they're given the precious gift of divine grace given to some by the Father to devote themselves to God alone more easily in virginity or celibacy. And what is that second scripture reference in that second uh, Vatican Council document refer to? In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 7, St. Paul writes, I wish that all were as I myself am. In other words, he's celibate. But each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And what I really want to highlight here, and, and quite strongly, is that first of all, when Jesus speaks of the eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, those who have voluntarily engaged in celibacy to closer approximate the ministry of Christ, to devote themselves fully to the ministry in the kingdom. Um, those people, it says, are it's something 
that is given them. And not all can receive it. It's something that's received as a gift. And that's explicitly what the Second Vatican Council says, that precious gift of divine grace given to some. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, which I just read to you, which says, but each has his own special gift. It's very interesting. That word gift, you look at it in the English Bible and maybe not a whole lot jumps off the page at you, but in the original Greek language in which this was written, the word is charisma, and it's based on the word from grace. And we get the word charismatic today. That's a, a, a Christian who believes in the empowering gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're charismatics. In other words, they believe in empowering gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, the church is teaching that celibacy is one of these gifts of grace. A few years ago, might have been several years ago now, one of my children said to me, Dad, I think the biggest mistake the Catholic Church has ever made was using the word mandated for certain things. And at first I thought, uh, I don't know about that, you know, but I've thought about it, and I don't know if it's the biggest mistake, but I do think it's a mistake when we're talking about the gift of celibacy to emphasize something that's mandated rather than it's something that's given, that's something that I do because it's required I do versus it's a charismatic gift, literally, because that scripture, that Second Vatican Council cites, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, that special gift that St. Paul is talking about is a charismatic gift. And what happens when you use the word mandated and maybe take it a little too far in your understanding and that idea that it's a gift of grace, a gift of the Holy Spirit kind of goes into eclipse. Well, you end up with self-effort for celibacy and that results in a danger. And there are those who don't have the gift and just followed a mandate, and as a result, just in the United States, we've had three to four billion dollars in financial settlements for sexual abuse victims. And I can't get my head around a billion dollars, and I realize that now our national debt is a trillion dollars, but a billion dollars equals $1,000 million. And if you spent $1,000 a day, it would take you 2,740 years before you ran out of money. That's how much money has been spent in the United States. And there are undoubtedly multiple causes for that, for clergy sex abuse. But one of those is just ignoring the words of Jesus that not all can receive it, it comes as a gift, the Second Vatican Council, and then even St. Paul, when he says this is a, a charisma, it's a charismatic 
gift that comes from the Holy Spirit, not something that I try to do with my own self-unaided effort. Now, this is something radical, and I realize nobody will probably pay attention to this, but I would advocate not even calling it mandated celibacy. Why don't we call it instead charismatic celibacy, or if you don't like the term charismatic, call it gifted celibacy. The emphasis on the gift of grace, not on something I do. It's obviously something the person has to do in response to grace, but the engine for it is God himself. And that's part of Matthew 19 that came right after the talk about marriage. And then we talk about children, starting in verse 13 of Matthew 19. It says, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And he laid his hands on them and went away. I think it's very interesting that the Catholic Church has frequently referred to the verses I just read to you from Matthew 19 when it discusses infant baptism. Now, it's pretty clear. I did read the word baptism. It didn't have anything explicitly to say about baptism, but it's something that the church has long recognized from this passage. I have advocated several times that if you're reading the Bible, one of the good ways, not the only way, but one of the really good ways to read the Bible is to get a good study Bible where you have the text, like you're reading Matthew 19, and you have the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, where on the bottom of the page you have the explanation of what you're reading in the half page above. The other good study Bible that I recommend is the Navarre Study Bible, and this Catholic Study Bible has the particular feature, it has a lot of papal quotes and church father quotes and that kind of sets it apart. Now, how in the world are you going to find out, uh, say, well, Pope Pius V, what did he have to say about Matthew 19 and little children coming to Jesus? Well, this is right out of the Navarre Bible. I'm just going to give you a sense of what you would find on the same page, the bottom of the page in Matthew 19. And Pope Pius V said this, besides, It is not to be supposed that Christ the Lord would have withheld the sacrament and grace of baptism from children, of whom he said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, whom also he embraced, and upon whom he imposed his hands, to whom he gave his blessings. St. Pius V in his Catechism. Now, in the New Testament, not a whole lot is said about baptism. And my seminary experience was a little unusual, I guess, in a sense. I was at an evangelical seminary, and I had been raised in a Presbyterian church, and I was baptized as an infant uh, the same year I was born. And 
Then I found myself in the middle of one of the Jesus Movement churches in the West Coast, and I had myself rebaptized in the Pacific Ocean, one of those huge uh, mass gathering baptisms you've seen maybe in the movie The Jesus Revolution. And I thought, you know, that Protestant stuff where you just— you know, baptize infants. I thought that's just a little too much leftover Catholicism. I knew Catholicism was wrong, so infant baptism was wrong. So then I get to seminary, and I started reading Protestant scholars, theologians, who I really respected, true men of God, but they believed in infant baptism, and that kind of jilted me. So I began a study of baptism, the reason being uh, my wife was pregnant with our our first child. And I thought it was a closed book. I had rejected my infant baptism, baptized in the Pacific Ocean a second time with the born again movement and all that. And now I was back to square one. I didn't know which one it was. And I was spending a lot of time, we had a pretty rigorous academic load, and I was spending a lot of time reading one book for infant baptism, reading another book against infant baptism, one for, one against going crazy, trying to keep up with my academic load while at the same time trying to figure this one out. And then finally, I came across a sentence that had a simple question. And it said this, how much of the Bible do you use to answer the infant baptism question? And ding, (laughs) I got it. It became very clear, and here's why. The New Testament doesn't say much about baptizing babies because that issue was settled 2,000 years previously. You see, in the New Testament, another word for the New Testament is the new covenant with Jesus. But for 2,000 years, you have the old covenant— that God made with Abraham, the father of all the faithful, both Jew and Gentile now we know at this point in history. But 2,000 years ago, God instructed Abraham as he came in covenant with God that if you are coming as an adult for the first time and you don't have any background in the faith with Yahweh, you would be circumcised as an adult. But all of the children, the infant males within your family born subsequent to your circumcision, on the eighth day, they would be circumcised. All right. So the principle of our children included in the new covenant, this was a simple one. <laughs> of course they are. They've been included for 2,000 years And Jesus didn't come like take an ax between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's very interesting. I didn't learn this till after I became a Catholic, but I understood in the early church fathers, one of the earliest questions regarding baptism was that in the New Covenant, can baptism take place before the eighth day? Now you have to think, what context would that question arise from? Well, in the Old Testament, you waited till the eighth day. That was the law for circumcision of infants. And in the New Covenant, they're saying there's some changes, yes, but the principle 
there's not a question of do you have infants included, but whether or not you have to wait eight days or not, like back in Genesis. And then you have, and this is an important one in case you have family situations or children and your grandchildren or whatever may be raised outside the context of infant baptism. There's a very important set of verses in the Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 2. And he basically is using the term circumcision, the New Testament circumcision, as a euphemism for baptism. This is what he says. In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Now, we know this is talking about baptism. It's different from the old covenant circumcision because the next verse says, and you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. And you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And so here we see in Colossians 2, joining the idea that what circumcision stood for generally in the old covenant is now fulfilled by baptism in the new. And you don't have to waste a lot of ink in the New Testament, say that babies are included. Now, I think it's fair um, to listen to people who disagree with you. And one of the reasons I'm open to that because I was one of the people who disagreed with both the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church in baptizing infants. And by the way, and this is even before I became a Catholic, I had a very humbling phone call to my mother. My dad had already passed away and said, I just want you to know that I think the um, first baptism I had that you and dad did was the real one. And I, you know, I didn't really need to go have the second one. My mom was real nice about it. It's not bad to have two, you know. I said, no, oh, the one you and dad did was the right one, and I didn't need to go do it a second time. So any case, having been on both sides of this debate, I just went this week to a Baptist website. I want you to know what Baptists feel and believe about infant baptism. And sometimes when you listen, you can hear people's concerns. And this is, this is from a Baptist website entitled The Harm of Infant Baptism. And it goes like this. Baptism of a baby does untold harm. For one thing, it leaves the impression that the change of heart is not necessary. It leaves the impression that the religion of the Lord is a matter of ritual and not of personal faith. Obviously, as Catholics, we believe both. The sacrament and faith go together. Worst of all, the one who is thus given a ceremony, which is only for Christians, often is led to believe in after years that since he is a member of the church, has been baptized, and is a respectable citizen, therefore he does not need the change of heart. Now, you can listen to apologists tell you the reasons, the biblical reasons, the reasons from the church fathers, the catechisms, the papal statements. You can have all the reasons in the world why infant baptism is true, but if you neglect what I'm about to read, 
you'll be talking to a stone wall. Because what is their concern? Their concern is that if you baptize a baby, they will not grow in faith. They will not grow up to have a personal attachment to Christ. Now, a lot of Catholic parents and grandparents are wondering, what happened to my kids? I put them through school and catechism classes and all the sacraments, and, you know, they're just drifting away from the faith. What happened? What happened was something that didn't happen. And I'm going to read to you something from St. John Paul II, that if we really paid attention to this, that the Baptist may not agree with our infant baptism, but the stinger would be removed. Uh, and, and there'd be at least a respect for what Catholics are doing. Now, I have to confess that this could be the 20th time on Catholic radio I have read this quote. It's from Catechesis in Our Time. And no, well, maybe I am getting senile, but I'm not getting senile on this one. This is the very point And if we just did what St. John Paul II says to do with our young people, the rate that fall away will dramatically drop, and all the opposition, even those who leave the Catholic Church and become Baptist or Baptistic and oppose infant baptism, the stinger will be gone. So what does he say? Catechetical practice must follow for the fact that the initial evangelization has not taken place. A certain number of children baptized in infancy come for catechesis in the parish without receiving any other initiation into the faith. This is exactly what the Baptists are concerned about. You just baptize the baby, oh, that's it. That's their ticket to heaven and not not recognizing there's a need to nurture that faith, to grow it. He goes on to say, they are still without any explicit personal attachment to Jesus Christ. This isn't Billy Graham. This isn't Franklin Graham. This is St. John Paul II saying they need an explicit personal attachment to Christ. And he goes on, they have only the capacity to believe placed within them by baptism and the presence of the Holy Spirit. This means that catechists, listen up. Youth leaders, listen up. Homeschoolers, listen up. Mom and dad, listen up. This means that catechesis must often concern itself not only with nourishing and teaching the faith, which we do very well, but also with arousing it unceasingly with the help of grace with opening the heart, with converting, and with preparing total adherence to Jesus Christ on the part of those who are still in the threshold of faith. You know, uh, if I just took out the infant baptism phrases in St. John Paul II's phrase right here, and if I showed it to ever that Baptist pastor or theologian that wrote that website, The Harm of Infant Baptism, he would agree with it wholeheartedly. And if he said, okay, uh, I do believe in infant baptism, but here's what we are doing in our parish to follow the instruction of John Paul II, to not just say this is an empty ritual, we're not going to follow up. No, we're going to follow up with great diligence. And so I leave that with you. Um, This is one of the more important things I think St. John Paul II left us 
because we're just not making it, and there's a lot outside the church that would maybe be a lot more open to coming in if they saw us doing what our Pope, St. John Paul II, told us to do. And now, just very briefly, we're coming to the end of Matthew 19, but there's a long section on the rich young ruler. And I have to, um, I have to admit, I deem myself unqualified to render any definitive response to this passage. Uh, I read commentaries and clever ways to water down Jesus's teaching to the rich young ruler, but I recognize, hey, I grew up and have lived in a middle-class family lifestyle all my life, and that middle-class lifestyle was in the wealthiest country in the entire history of the world. I just read this week, if you're a member of the American middle class, then you are a part of the world's top one to two percent of earners, okay? Now, I realize that prices in our economy has gone crazy, putting incredible stress on middle-class families, but nonetheless, we are so um, different from the entire history of the world regarding our wealth and even the rest of the world at this time. In fact, the poor in the United States are equivalent to the middle-income people in the entire rest of the world. So we're different and we're different, and it colors our thoughts when we read something like this. But I would encourage you uh, to read Deuteronomy chapter 8. Something changed. In the Old Testament, it was a sign of favor that if you were faithful and obedient to God, you would bestow wealth and riches and lands and that type of thing. But in Deuteronomy 8, he says you have to be careful because you're gonna eat and be full, and you're gonna bless God for all the good land he has given you. But he says, take heed lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and live in them, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And you know, we have to be very careful, I believe, as Americans, because we have no idea, I don't think, of the blessings we have. And those of you who have done mission trips to, say, Mexico, I had a short stint in Haiti in the Navy, and it's just kind of like landing on another planet. And I have a feeling Jesus, when he's talking about wealth and poverty, it's we're we're so far off the curve we need to really hear his words. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 458 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.